The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and the mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. This is Micah chapter 4, 9 through 5, 5, a minor prophet. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies." Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled. Let, her, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plans, that he has gathered them as sheaves in the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make you your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, the wealth of the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Erethaheth, You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Those coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Hebrews. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, 
there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because its weakness and usefulness, uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, To Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the time of the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring the word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and they worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Andine O'Neill. I'm the pastor of Worship Arts and... Every now and then I get to preach as well. Today is one of those privileged days for me. Um, Today we're going to look at Micah. We're doing a minor prophet every Sunday. Um, He's the younger contemporary of Isaiah. He's the last of the 8th century prophets. Within his lifetime, he sees the northern kingdom of Israel fall to the Assyrians because the kingdoms have been divided. Israel, northern Israel, southern Judah. And he lives in the southern kingdom in Judah, a nation much in danger of succumbing to the same fate. Fate is an interesting word. I think most Disney movies use it. 
Uh, there's usually some character feeling trapped in their family or their culture or their situation, and phrases like change your fate, follow your heart, or possibly um, let it go are used to catalyze the hero or heroine to become all that they desire to be. To be clear, I actually like Disney movies. I, at least a fair number of them, we watch them as a family. And I have sang um, all the songs pretty loudly with my children, sometimes without them. But there's something very important for us to be wary of, to be conscious of. If from our culture, oh, I need to say, I'm quoting... This book I'm really loving right now, um, it's called The Scandal of Holiness, and it's written by Jessica Houghton Wilson. This is her quote. If from our culture we are imbibing stories that tell us we're the hero of our own story, or worse, we're the author of our own story, then we will confront a swarm of problems. Frustration when other characters or events do not act as we want them to, confusion in our attempts to create meaning, a lack of control over beginnings and endings, if we believe we are the authors of our story, we'll be blind to our potential as the villain. Our failed attempts at being heroes will cause us guilt and heartache. Worst of all, when we believe our culture's narrative that we are the author or hero of our story, we fail to desire a relationship with the true author and the true hero of this story. Israel, Judah, they wanted to be in charge of their fate. They followed their hearts. They wanted to be the hero of the story they wanted to write and were therefore blinded to the real story. And here's the kicker. The real story, the real hero, the real author actually writes a richer beginning, a more compelling middle, and by far a more marvelous ending than any of Israel could ever hope to write for themselves. Due to their wayward ways, they find themselves in a serious situation of distress. And Micah is desperate to bring God's actual story to light for the sake of his people. And after we've examined Micah's words together, we're going to see that even when all may feel lost, God is the one who moves his people through distress to deliverance. And to do so this morning, we're going to answer these three questions looking at the passage. Number one, three categories of questions. Why distress and what distress? What's happening here? Why distress, what distress? Number two, who will deliver and when will this deliverance occur? And number three, how are they going to be called to wait? We're going to dive into history here looking at Micah. Let's tackle the initial set of questions. Why distress and what distress? Well, let's talk about the why. Well, there had been a period of peace previously, and a wealthy upper class developed. And unfortunately, after that, corruption followed in every sphere of their world. The nation's governmental and religious leaders failed to do things above board and preferred money and power to integrity and generosity. There were even prophets who took bribes from leaders to give acceptable and happy prophecies. Businesses were corrupt, and the poor suffered greatly in all of this. There was a powerful group of elite who would seize and claim as their own the land of ordinary, unprivileged Israelites, their very inheritance and livelihood, the covenant promise even. 
there was rampant worship of idols. People would offer sacrifices or participate in pagan rituals in kind of a transactional exchange to supposedly have assurance, for example, that their crops or families or wealth would grow if they did this. Basically, people grasped greedily and conceitedly for whatever they wanted, no matter the collateral damage to the poor, to their integrity, or to their, to their covenant with the Lord. The covenant with Yahweh had indeed been broken, and it had been broken for some time now. And in the covenant, there were blessings and curses associated for either abiding by or breaking it. The consequences for breaking the covenant were upon them. So that's why the distress. Now, what's the distress? For this, we're going to go right to our passage. And um, the passage in your bulletin so from uh, Micah 4 and 5, I would recommend looking at it because we're diving into it so intensely. Um, we're going to break it into three sections, and they're each structured similarly. They start with a distressing warning beginning with the word now. There's three now sections. I'm going to often refer to the first, second, or third now passage. Let's look at the first now passage. Now, why do you cry aloud, daughter of Zion? There's extraordinary pain and anguish here. There's no king, no counselor. Now rise up and groan. Quite literally, the Hebrew for that word groan means push in anguish, like labor. And go forth from the protection of the city and leave the safety of the city walls. Leave all the traditions of your forefathers that have made you what you are, forfeit the land of your inheritance, and live among the violent and insecure lands of open country. That's what Micah is prophesying is before them. Now, after the northern kingdom was defeated by Assyria, they still remained a huge threat to Judah. In fact, Judah's king pays a yearly tribute to Assyria to appease him. But notice where does Micah say the daughter of Zion will go? Not to Assyria, but to Babylon. From our privileged vantage point, this is remarkable prophetic truth. We know that sometime after Micah's lifetime, Assyrian power fades, and they're replaced by the Babylonians. And in 597 BC, 130 years after the northern kingdom falls, a long time later, Judah will indeed fall precisely to Babylon, again, way after Micah's dead. He would have no way of guessing this apart from being filled with the Spirit of God to proclaim his truth, his story. And we should note, it was so important to the Israelites that Jerusalem, or Zion, Zion also is referring to Jerusalem, that that never be overthrown, it being their beloved center of their rule and their temple practices, that by uttering such a prophecy of destruction, Micah was risking his very life. Let's look at the distress of the second now passage. Many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Again, before Babylon even comes to power, they're not in power yet. Right now, the Assyria, Assyria is the real threat. And around the time of Micah's writing, there's a new Assyrian king that's come to power, Sennacherib. King Hezekiah of Judah would take the opportunity of this transition of power to see if he could reassert some of his own independence. Perhaps Assyria is a little vulnerable right now. So he did not pay his yearly tribute, frustrating Sennacherib. Sennacherib wasn't going to give any power away. He came out swinging. He was going to punish Hezekiah and grasp for even more power. 
So 20 years after the northern kingdom's fall, I'm trying to be clear, I know it gets complicated. The northern kingdom has fallen. Assyria is still strong. Hezekiah doesn't pay the tribute. Assyria is like, I'm coming for you, Jerusalem. Sennacherib led a campaign into Judah. The Assyrians captured 40 cities and were especially focused on defeating a certain town that guarded access to Jerusalem. He was determined to desecrate it and its holy temple and destroy its king. In Sennacherib's own records, non-biblical historical documents, they say that Sennacherib says that he had uh, the king shut up like a caged bird. He was so ready to finish the job. It seems likely that all is going to be lost. But we'll get to the end of that story later. Let's move to the third passage to look at the distress listed again. In 5.1, we see now, Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here, the judge, the ruler, struck on the cheek. That seems likely to mean he is defeated and humiliated. Even the way Micah addresses with kind of a play on words, the daughter of troops, muster your troops, that makes it show that it's showing that the, um, the Judah's showing, like their ability to fight was so tiny, a tiny troop versus a whole siege laid against them. They're simply unable to defend themselves. This could be referencing Assyria or possibly Babylon or possibly a more all-encompassing sense of loss at the hands of any or all enemies with no ruler to lead them at all. It's hard to say for sure, but in any case, here we are. We've thoroughly examined all the distress. So now what happens next? It seems all is lost, does it not? But I hope to show that even when all may feel lost, God is the one who moves his people through distress to deliverance. At this point, you would be forgiven if you were starting to get confused. You might be thinking, okay, so Babylon will be the southern kingdom Judah's actual downfall and their exile many years later. But there's also other nations like Assyria at their doorstep hungry for blood right now. And Micah is prophesying about them all at once, kind of separately and kind of together. Yes, that is what he's doing. Though it's understandable, it might be difficult to understand. It's important to remember we don't think like an 8th century BC prophet. Neither do we think like their audiences. And likewise, they did not think like us. In these prophecies, we see layers of meaning. For them, the cohesive aspect of a story was to bring to light God's truth and character more than being perfectly chronological and categorized. The prophet wants the story to be perceived almost from a vertical more than a horizontal plane. When viewed in the right light, the mystery of these prophecies makes the truth even more potent and beautiful and real. Now, who will deliver and when will the the deliverance occur? It's time to get into it. We are at our second set of questions. Let's look at the text, and goodness, it is rich. We're going to look at the text closely to talk about who, and then we'll back up at a distance to talk about when. In the first now passage, after the writhe and groan like a woman and go up from your city to Babylon, Micah continues, there you shall be rescued. 
There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So there it is. Babylon is not the end. And Micah wants Judah to see past even the desecration of the temple, past the exile from their own land. The Lord will rescue and redeem Judah from its enemies. And now when Babylon eventually conquers them, and by the way, that will be horrible, they can recognize it as a part of their story, but not the end of their story. And this use of the word redeem is actually the same kinsman redeemer term used of Boaz and Ruth. It's a legal term, which is fitting because Micah has brought forth a prosecution against Israel and Judah. And then as we're discussing the prophecies of the sentence, their debt for their transgressions. But then Micah also tells them that's not where the story ends. The Lord plans even now to pay the finality of their debt to serve the sentence and rescue his people. Let's look at the deliverance of the second passage, the second now passage. After many nations say, let her be defiled, let us gaze upon Zion, the passage continues, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron and your hooves bronze, and you will beat in pieces the many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So earlier, again, we were talking about Babylon, but I think here it's appropriate to turn back to the Assyrians, as we discussed the first time. Remember how cornered Sennacherib of Assyria thought he had the king of Judah? Like a caged bird, right? Well, let's dig in. Micah is calling Zion as tough as an iron-horned, bronze-hooved ox, threshing or stomping on its enemies till they are beat into pieces. It sounds as if Micah is now referring to a moment when Zion, Jerusalem, by the Lord's providence, will overcome the enemy. This can't be Babylon because we actually know Babylon does defeat Zion and Judah, exile them. So let's return to the Sennacherib story. Angry Sennacherib, ready to pounce on Judah's king. As you can read in Isaiah and in 2 Kings, Jerusalem is supernaturally delivered. At an especially despairing point, an angel of the Lord enters the Assyrian camp and miraculously slays 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and Zion prevailed. Do you know what Sennacherib's records say? Nothing. It brags about how he had them cornered and then says nothing about how it ended. And when Sennacherib returned to the Assyrian capital, he was killed by two of his own sons. We can intuit from this that it did not go well. Micah was prophesying that God would deliver Judah out of the hands of the Assyrians. Of course, this is much to celebrate. And yet, we know that hardship looms ahead after that, even. In the first now passage, we see, we saw that 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 redemption of the whole Babylon exile, that wasn't going to come until they'd actually been defeated in exile. But God is still a miraculous saving God. And here, even in an intermediary sense, we see God's deliverance for Zion, for Jerusalem. This prophecy is also meant to point to a greater future instance or instances of God's saving character. I have a weird illustration now because I don't actually know what I'm talking about. 
But do you know what a foraptor machine is? If you're an ophthalmologist, you might know it. It's that machine with like a bajillion glass lenses that they help assign prescriptions for people who need glasses. I actually tried to learn how one worked. (laughs) I watched a video, but it was too technical for me to maintain interest, and I stopped. But I have the concept that the doctor is constantly switching between different kinds of lenses, correcting for astigmatisms, and I think combining various lenses and corrective measures to ensure the patient's clearest vision. One of you is an ophthalmologist, and I'm totally wrong. I'm sorry. But it's almost like Micah is doing this for us. He's offering you one lens through which to look at the story and then another lens to look at the story. And then when combined, possibly even with more layers, you can see even more clearly the ultimate, dominant, and clearest vision of the true hope he's desperate for everyone to understand. Micah's asking his hearers to know the character of God at many levels. Yes, he's a God of judgment, and he's a God of mercy. And his consistency as deliverer, redeemer, savior, and most plainly, as the author and the hero of their story. And this tees up the third now passage, this last one. After, now muster your troops, the siege is laid against us. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah continues, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah is, of course, prophesying about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is remarkable. First of all, from Bethlehem, Micah is the only one, the only prophet to declare the birthplace of Christ. And Bethlehem was not the obvious choice. The word little is actually meant as a lack of significance. But it was, as we should remember, the birthplace of David, who was also insignificant in his beginning. From there will come the ruler whose origins are ancient. His line can be traced, yes, to David, which will fulfill the covenant promises God made, even though Israel had broken them, saying God would establish the throne of David forever, but even farther back, as ancient and infinite as the Trinity itself. Though Israel will be scattered, they will later be gathered together. Though they will be leaderless, they will later gain a royal shepherd, a governor. Though they will be homeless and vulnerable, they will then dwell secure. And in all the ends of the earth, he shall be their peace. This is the ultimate, complete, and most important layer of this story. God the author sends Christ the hero to show his never-ending love for his people. And we've seen this now through many lenses. So when is this going to happen? When did Micah mean for it to happen? When will the Israelites be delivered? 
Let's take the first now passage. The first one. Babylon's invasion and victory is prophesied. And God's future rescue and redemption from exile there is prophesied as well. This particular instance will occur around 140 years from the time of Micah's words. And yet, we see layers of God as the redeemer of all his people throughout time. In the second now passage, Assyria's attempted invasion was prophesied, as is God's miraculous defense of them, the angel of the Lord, for telling Jerusalem's amazing victory. This would occur in Micah's lifetime, and yet we see layers of God as protector of all people throughout time. In the third now passage, Micah prophesies the overwhelming onslaught of war being against them. The natural consequences of all the broken covenant promises, and there is no way for them to defend themselves. There's no hero from within them. Micah also prophesies a woman will give labor, or will, will labor and give birth. Connected to but contrasted from the painful birth of the first passage, this son born to a woman in Bethlehem will change absolutely everything. He will undo all the wrong, take on all the curses of the broken covenant himself, and he will bring true and lasting peace. In this, combined with the other passages, we see a multi-layered view of a miraculous and true story we're meant to be drawn into. The fruition of these prophecies happening at different times and different layers. Combined, we can see a clear picture of a God who delivers and shepherds all his people throughout all time. The Israelites are not the hero, Christ is. The Israelites are not the author, God is. And even when all may feel lost, God is the one who moves his people through distress to deliverance. Still, I need to draw our attention to a tiny line that sets all of this back into a bit of an earthly timeline. In the same verse that references Jesus being born, it also says, Therefore, he shall give them up until that time when she has given birth. In other words, he will not establish this rule and reign for some time. So Micah is saying, you can know that your deliverer is coming, but you also can know that there will be quite a period of hardship and of waiting. Hmm. So how are they called to wait? We've arrived at our last question. We've answered why distress and what distress. We've answered who delivers and when. And now we're looking at how are they called to wait? I think it's helpful at this point to pause and put ourselves into the story. It's not conceited of us to do so, not so long as we keep context in mind. After all, Micah the prophet speaks true words meant for his time specifically, but the Holy Spirit intends them for ours as well. We are living in a fragile and uncertain time. Between the pandemic, political unrest, breakdown of community and institutional trust, seismic cultural shifts in perceived norms around marriage and gender, the strength of warring nations, I'd say our time feels distressing. There's even a fragility in our own church at times. Additionally, so many of the same distressing cultural practices abound in our days as well, and at times finding their way in 
to God's church. Being powerful and wealthy is so important that sacrificing integrity might feel the norm. Prophets or other leaders maybe accept bribes or discard honesty. Is there an elite that possibly steals from the poor? Worshiping idols might not look like bowing down before a bronze ram so our crops can grow, but there are plenty of other ways we turn from the true God and enslave ourselves to some other one. We are in distress. And we are people hurting. And we need help. Bonus. Big bonus. We are living after the coming of the Messiah. We know, as we see in our gospel passage, that the Messiah was in fact born in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus did set in motion the climax of God's story where he really did redeem the sins of not only Israel, but of all people who call upon his name. We know he defeated death. We know he defeated death and rose again. We know our deliverer came. We live in a time when the kingdom of God has come and we've seen so many prophecies come true. But we have not yet seen the final fruition. We still live within the consequences of the fall, the final restoration of all things, when our shepherd will rule all and we will dwell in peace. But that's yet to come with Christ's ultimate return. And so we have to wait too. But this is the best time to remember that we have a part to play in this story. We're not the hero. We're not the author, but we're involved and we're important, very important. We are invited to play a role in the ongoing kingdom work of Christ, and this is exciting, even if it's hard. It's only too easy in times as distressing as these to sacrifice our faithfulness in exchange for protection or security to make things easy. Or maybe to gain control of our story, we start to view life as a series of transactions, wherein we kind of work to guarantee our own outcomes. Like, if I do this, then I get that, right? If I do this, then that will happen. Or we even might approach God like this. What do I have to do, God, to just please you, to make it out okay in this world? Well, back in the days of the prophet Micah, Micah writes that people ask him a similar question, coming from a similar place. What does the Lord require of us? What will make life work out for them, especially while they wait? The people in the prophecy make increasingly outrageous claims about what might appease God. Should I bow? Should I make a sacrifice? A thousand sacrifices? Maybe 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn? Well, no. Because God's going to do that for you. God doesn't want his people to function in such a transactional system. They're missing the pulse of the story that he's trying to tell. In Micah 6, 8, Micah responds to his own rhetorical questions from the people saying, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the role that Israelites were given and we've been given. 
to live in the very character of God, to do justice, to love kindness and mercy, to walk humbly with him in his ways. God asked this of his people in Micah's day, even while they waited in distress. This is the rich and compelling middle of the story. We're to be instruments of God in the already not yet. I recently saw a story about mothballing. Have you ever heard of mothballing? I hadn't ever heard of it before. So it was a story about mothballing a grand historic home that had fallen into horrible disrepair. Apparently, mothballing, I looked into it, involves controlling the long-term deterioration of a building while it's unoccupied to protect it from the sudden loss by fire or vandalism or so on. So it's a means of stabilizing a derelict structure to avoid a teardown, but the full intended restoration is not yet possible. The concept struck me. In light of what we've discussed, it might feel that that's all that's left for us to do. In this time in between the climactic resurrection and the final restoration, maybe we mothball it. We know our house is going to be restored. We know God's going to come back. So just don't burn it down in the meanwhile. But no, no, that's not what the Lord asks of us. According to Micah 6.8, our role in this story is to participate in the ongoing restorative work of his kingdom. Fix the leaky plumbing. Write the crooked foundation. Remove the mold. Replace windows. Bring in light. Make beds. Welcome refugees. Plant flowers. Smell them. Cook delicious food and feed it to those who hunger. May the house, even while it's still broken, even while it's still awaiting its complete restoration, proclaim to the community, this is a place where justice, love, kindness, and the beauty of God springs forth. You can see where I'm going. You've all been given a sphere of influence, a set of skills, and a calling from God to do such things, either very figuratively possibly even literally. This is what the Lord requires of us. And bonus, number two, we will be healthier and more whole people when we lean into even hard and distressing seasons by upholding the call for justice and kindness and walking humbly with God. And our communities will be healthier too. And we can do all this with our prophetic lenses on. Micah gave them to us. Let's use them. We actually have a lot to look forward to. For we know that even when all may feel lost, God is the one who moves his people through distress to deliverance. Amen.